Good evening and welcome. I'm Mary Wood for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. I'm very happy to welcome those of you who are here in the green room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco. This is Wednesday, April 18th, 2012. And a warm welcome to those who may be listening to this program at a later date. These points of view programs are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil, and the adult education is coordinated by Cecilia Beam. These programs um, are also include the Meet the Artist interviews, sponsored by the Center for Dance Education. Uh, Meet the Artist interviews take place in the Opera House, an hour before selected performances, and they also produce any number of programs for children, both in the Opera House and out in the community. As most of you know, these lectures and interviews are recorded, and I really encourage you, as always, to go to the San Francisco Ballet website, sfballet.org, where you can find these interviews, you can find video, you can find updated information about programming and, of course, casting, and information about upcoming events that will take place between now and when next season begins. I have just a couple of announcements. A reminder that we do have hearing assistance devices. You can get those in the back. I'm sure that most of you know that the season 2013 has been announced, and the information is on the website. The next Points of View program will be held two weeks from tonight, and we will include a little bit of a preview of next season's program. The most important thing to note about next program, two weeks from tonight, on May 2nd, is that it will not be held in this room. It will be downstairs in the Herbst Theater. And my guests will be Artistic Director Helgi Thomason, the Production Director Christopher Dennis, and every now and then we get a surprise guest. We can't really predict that. I have one more, even more interesting announcement, <clears throat> and that is this building is going to be renovated. Who knows what they're going to do to it, but what they will do to it is they will make it inaccessible to us during next season. So you're going to have to pay very close attention to season announcements and announcements about the adult education programming, points of view lectures, to find out where we will be relocated. We're working on that as hard as we can at this point. For the past seven years... The San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education has invited internationally known dance and music scholars to share their knowledge with patrons and staff and artists and students of the San Francisco Ballet family. The goal of the Visiting Scholar Program is to inform and to inspire all ballet lovers by giving them special insight into the ballets of the repertoire. It now is going to give me a great deal of pleasure to introduce Carrie Geyser Casey, who will in turn introduce this evening's other guests. Dr. Casey received a PhD in performance studies at Berkeley, currently teaches in the LEAP program at St. Mary's. So if I could ask all of this evening's guests to come forward and turn it over to Carrie Geyser Casey.
Thank you, Mary, for the introduction. And today I'm very pleased to introduce two leading scholars in the field of dance history and musicology, Dr. Beth Janay and Dr. Stephen Hinton, uh, both of whom are going to help us understand better uh, George Ballantine's 1946 ballet, The Four Temperaments. Uh, Beth is a professor of dance studies and art history at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor. Her specialties in are 20th century ballet in America and Europe and dance in the American musical film. Uh, she was also a principal re- researcher in the George Balanchine Foundation's project Popular Balanchine. And her next book is on the contributions of Fred Astaire, George Balanchine, and Gene Kelly to the American musical film. So we're very much looking forward to that coming out. And as you know, of course, Beth was our uh, 2012 San Francisco Ballet Visiting Scholar, and I hope you had a chance to attend one of her wonderful events this week. Uh, Stephen is Avalon Foundation Professor in the Humanities and Professor of Music and German at Stanford University. He also serves as the Denning Family Director of the Arch Initiative and the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts. He specializes in modern German music history, and his book, Viles Music Theater, Stages of Reform, uh, was just published by the University of California Press. I'm told it literally came out last week. So congratulations to Stephen. Now, the structure of what we're going to do tonight uh, is as follows. Our guests will each speak, Beth and then Stephen, and then we will have a brief time for them to respond to one another, if we have time. <laughs> If we don't have time, I will open it up to the audience for questions, but I want to make sure that we get enough time for everybody's questions. Uh, And before we begin, um, I did want to just give you a little bit of background information about the ballets, just so that we're all kind of on the same page, so to speak. Uh, And now I'm going to be juggling paper and clicker and microphones. We'll see how this goes. Oh, yes. Here are their lovely pictures. (laughs) So you can put faces to... (laughs) Yes, here they are. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) Okay. Um, So Balanchine commissioned the score from composer Paul Hindemith. Um, It was called The Theme with Four Variations, in parentheses, The Four Temperaments. The score was completed in 1940 for string orchestra and piano. And we're told that uh, Balanchine commissioned the score actually for his own listening and playing pleasure. He was quite a musician and also somewhat of a composer himself. Uh, The ballet itself, both the ballet and the score, are based on the idea of the four temperaments or the four humors. This was a concept um, from medieval medicine, so to speak. Um, The four temperaments, melancholic, phlegmatic, choleric, sanguinic, uh, were thought to correspond to basic physiological types that also corresponded to basic personality types. Um, which also corresponded to the four elements. So melancholic was earth, uh, sanguinic was air, phlegmatic water, and choleric fire. And indeed, if you watch the choreography, you can sometimes see some of these um, elements being rendered um, imagistically through the choreography. Now, of the ballet, critic Edwin Denby wrote, it appears to have the dispassionate ferocity of a vital process, It suggests the grandiose impersonal drama of organic energies. Uh, Another critic stated that the theme of the four temperaments was transformation itself. 
And accordingly, the Four Top Romance is one of those very, very hard-to-classify ballets. Uh, for example, it is often termed a modern or a modernist ballet, in part because it's performed in practice clothes, leotard and tights, much like um, the Balanchine's Agon of 1956. Um, but it, its costumes were originally uh, designed by a noted surrealist designer, a uh, surrealist artist, Kurt Seligman, who was an expat for Paris, moved to New York uh, roughly at the same time that Balanchine moved there. And as you can see, these look nothing like the current Four Temperaments costumes. And in fact, in, uh, at the night of the premiere of the ballet, Balanchine was in the wings cutting boulders off of people's heads and you know, trimming the costumes. Well, he kept trimming, and then finally, by 1951, we were in leotard and tights. I think he got just really sick of having to keep modifying these costumes. Uh, so, as such, um, terms like modernist, surrealist, neoclassical, uh, I've seen this ballet referred to as formalist, neo-romantic. Um, all of these isms and ists um, have been attached to this ballet, and it really can be quite confusing to try to understand uh, just what exactly is going on with the choreography and the music. And that is why we have Beth and Stephen here tonight. Um, one thing is clear, however, and that is that this ballet is really a, a pivotal moment in Balanchine's career. He uh, expanded the classical vocabulary in this ballet really to a degree that he hadn't before. There's everything from Broadway and jazz movements to pedest pedestrian gestures, um, also steps drawn from modern dancer in this ballet. Um, I'm sure Beth will expand on, on this litany here uh, for us in a moment. But it really is a kind of watershed event um, for Balanchine in terms of his, his chore um, choreographic arc. All right, without further ado, I'm going to hand things over to Beth. Okay. Do you know what? I realized that I think I need you to click. Because, like you to click. Yeah, because I've got my notes and then I've also got the microphone. Okay. And there's nothing left over. So we'll see. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, I'll tell you when I'm ready. Okay. Um, in Four Temperaments, as Carrie just told you, Balanchine certainly introduces a new look, a break from traditional 19th century ballet. Um, and we'll see this in another moment. I'm going to show you a clip from both, from the first two themes of the Four Temperaments. Um, he changes how the way his dancers move and how they relate to one another. But at the same time, the dancers here are firmly rooted in the academic vocabulary that had been developing for over 500 years, beginning in the Renaissance courts of Italy and France. They were codified and systematized at the court of Louis XIV, who was himself a great dancer. The dancers are turned out from the hip so that the leg can move and rotate freely in the hip socket. The limbs and feet are stretched and flexible. To the ballet dancer, every minor detail of body shape is of major importance. Like living sculpture, dancers' bodies are organized by the choreographer to be precisely placed in relationship to one another and to the space around them. Balanchine extends and expands this vocabulary, however, and this we'll see in the film to follow. What I'm going to do first is to compare the first two themes of the Four Temperaments to the Grand Pas de Deux, or the beginning of the Grand Pas de Deux, Sleeping Beauty, 
in 18, which was first choreographed in 1890 by Marius Petipa with music by Tchaikovsky. This is the ballet that Balanchine cut his dancer's teeth on in performance and that he cites as one of his favorite ballets. And it kind of sums up the 19th century vocabulary. So I'd like you to look at this and while you're looking, think of the following things if you can. First, the courtly atmosphere. Um, ballet is built on the manners of the aristocracy. Um, this, the actual vocabulary started out as a form of teaching manners. How do you present yourself as a civilized person to another person? You present yourself with your head erect, your um, shoulders are back, your uh, chest is open, you're not, you don't have any weapons in your hand, you're not, you're not concealing your weapons. Um, you bow courteously to your, uh, the person that you're meeting. This is how a gentleman behaves. The whole idea, or a gentlewoman, the whole idea of the peasant was supposed to be curved over and vulgar and kind of slouched to the ground doing work, but a gentleman stands erect. So you have this formal relationship, even though you're seeing here a wedding padada, these two characters have just been married, they still have a very formal relationship to one another. And I want you to notice the graceful, upright posture. Uh, notice how the dancers look at one another and how they acknowledge one another with very formal gestures, bows, offering the hand, nodding their head. Um, notice that the arms are held in curves and that uh, the relationship between the bodies is what I guess people call now heteronormal. You have the man who protects the woman, who supports her, who uh, acknowledges her first. Um, this is a this is uh, a ballet that really is about that atmosphere as well as the dance itself. The other thing that I want you to notice is how the dancers move from pose to pose. Okay, So here's the beginning. bows to her, he offers her his arm, she takes it. They don't look past each other, they look at each other. He supports her as she curves back, a beautiful curved arc of her back. You can see this kind of graceful curved look of the arms. Again, she acknowledges him. Every time she turns towards him, she acknowledges the man. Okay, there we go. That's it. Okay, wish we could go further, but we don't have the time. Okay, um, let's contrast this to the opening of the Four Temperaments, and it has a great deal in common with the opening of the Sleeping Beauty. Um, for one thing, you'll see the man and the woman here offer each other their hands, but in a very different way. Um, the mood and the relationship is very different, almost an alienated mood. The arms no longer are gracefully curved, but angled. Feet are not always pointed, but could can be flexed. And Balanchine plays on the contrast between the flexed foot and the pointed foot. Um, you also see some revolutionary partnering. 
um, one of Balanchine's most extraordinary characteristics. The woman raises her leg in a high extension, like the high extension you just saw in Sleeping Beauty, but notice where she puts her leg. She wraps it around his back, she puts it through his crotch, and at the end she leans forward and wraps it around his neck. The relationship is very, very different. Then, instead of lifting her up as might be a standard conclusion to a ballet, she drops in his arms and he drags her off. So let's look at the first theme. Just the first one one, and then we can do theme two. So they face out. They don't really acknowledge each other. And then they turn away from one another. flexed on the pointed foot. Again, the flexed on the pointed foot. Now watch her legs. Watch how that when she raises her leg and when she puts it in what we call passe, you really see an angle here. You're seeing a relationship of angles and lines, straight lines. he takes her off and she leans back one more turn and then she leans completely over and he drags her off so we're in a world of another relationship between a man and a woman here Now let's take a look at theme two, and there are two things that I want you to notice about this. I call this the jazz variation. It starts with, um, uh, you'll see the dancers lift their legs up, but they lean way back, and then they kind of fall forward on their legs. It's an off-balance movement, which is very characteristic of jazz dance. You'll notice that at one point, the partnering is also distinctive. He spins her like a cello in the jazz bands, the swing bands of the 30s and 40s. Have you ever seen movies with, where the guy, you know, they swing the cellos around? So he does that um, with her. Notice how he manipulates her hips so that she is thrusting back and, a, and side in a very asymmetrical way. And here, Balanchine br- breaks a cardinal rule of 19th century ballet, which is, number one, you, need, you, you don't always come back to a stable position. You're constantly moving off the center. Um, and the other thing that you get is this use of the hips and the torso, which is really not a part of the 19th century ballet vocabulary. The hips are tame, in a way, in the 19th century. So let's see, take a look at that. No. Uh-oh. Keep going. 
Uh, I guess you can't do. Can we fast forward it? How are we doing on time? Six minutes. Okay, why don't we just skip it? Okay. All right, sorry about that. Um, you'll just have to watch for the theme two tonight, right? You'll see it. Just to look for the hips, the manipulation of the hips. Okay, as a scholar, um, now let's. So, what I want, the point that, that I want to make about this theme two that you'll again you'll see tonight is this jazzy quality of it. Um, and now let's just talk about how, how do I, how do you place the four temperaments. As a scholar, I'm as guilty of trying to classify dances in categories or under labels as the next person. It's a kind of convenient method of organization, especially when you are teaching a survey course in dance history or art history or music history. But as you know, there are two problems with labels, um, especially two of the terms that are most often applied to Mr. B, neoclassical and modern. In an interview with Bonnie Bourne last week, who was a, uh, danced in the Four Temperaments and was a Balanchine dancer, she told me that Balanchine did not like the label neoclassical and he did not like the label modern. He would say occasionally at rehearsal, well, that's what they call us, whatever neoclassical means or whatever modern means. But they really don't know what we're about. So instead of trying to define the labels, let's look at specific characteristics that Balanchine's four temperament shows and where these characteristics might come from or be related to the world around him and the art, the, especially the world of the arts and the culture that surrounds him. And then let's go from there. So uh, this is an image that those of you who've come to my lectures before uh, have seen. Um, and so I'll just well say briefly that Balanchine, of course, grows up in the jazz age, and he grows up uh, in an age where the word streamline um, was a big adjective. I mean, it was bigly, a very important adjective. Um, here's the streamliners that came into um, fashion in the 1920s and 30s, actually, the mid-30s. And the whole idea is to strip down, to get rid of the excrescences, to take away the decoration, to make it as, as streamlined as possible. You see that happening with Balanchine dancers as well in the four temperaments, especially because Mr. B takes it away. I mean, he, you know, he, he very much, as um, Carrie said, wanted to strip away um, the costumes. And he, again, abandons the curves and the de decorative movements that dancers might give. It's very straightforward, very streamlined. Um, let's see. Just because how much time do I have now? Five minutes. Okay, here we go. Okay, let's look at the next slide. Okay, here is uh, the Empire State Building. Again, a building built in the 30s, and here is a, an image from the Four Temperaments, and you can see that kind of upward thrust. Um, get, you know, move fast and move there as efficiently and quickly as possible. Let's go to the next one. 
The other thing that you can talk about in relation to Balanchine are, are the visual arts, movements in the visual arts. You know, Balanchine grew up in the revolution. Um, he was in his teen years when the revolution started um, in 1917. And I'm giving you two examples on the top of a work by what's called, a, called the movement of suprematism. This is um, by El Lisitsky. It's from 1919. And the first uh, painting over there is called Beat the Whites with the Red Edge. And the whites are the white Russians. The reds are the red Russians. So beat the whites with the red wedge. Balanchine would have seen that kind of thing all over the place. This was a propaganda poster for um, the Bolsheviks. Another Lisitsky up here, um, interested in angles and lines and um, these kind of dynamic streamlined shapes. But then also it's everywhere. It's not just with the Russian constructivists. This is a Mondrian from 1940. Um, a representative of the Distill style. Um, and it's actually Mondrian painting in New York. It's 1940, around the time that Balanchine's is first beginning to think about the four temperaments. This is called Broadway Boogie Woogie. And again, you have these streamlined shapes. He's interested in patterns in grids and squares and geometrical shapes. And then an image from the four temperaments here. Uh, so I would say that those are the art movements that the final four temperaments, the one that ends up that Balanchine wants with stripped away, con um, stripped away costumes, that's something that Balanchine's very interested in. Um, so the four temperaments you see tonight is certainly much more related to these kinds of art movements than it is to, say, surrealism. However, let me just say one thing about the four temperaments themselves and Balanchine's classification, uh, dance expression of the four temperaments. Later in his life, Balanchine said that actually the ballet had nothing to do with the four temperaments. He said, the, 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 more, the, the less you know about the four temperaments, the better. I don't want you to think about the four temperaments. However, when it was first produced with the dancers that it was danced with, the connection between the sections, um, melancholic, sanguinic, choleric, um, and phlegmatic, were much closer. And you certainly can see the essence of those today. For example, melancholic, with all these falls to the floor, this kind of contorted body that's, you know, presenting itself, this, this character agonized on stage. Sanguinic, which is very lively. Choleric, in which she moves like nobody's business all around. And then especially phlegmatic. And I want you to look at phlegmatic. At the beginning of phlegmatic's um, variation, he walks forward as if he's looking for something, and then he pulls back. And you'll see him constantly pulling away. At one point, he actually crouches in between the dancers, the four female dancers that dance with him, and he kind of peers out through their, their, um, their legs. It's a wonderful image. So I think that is still left there, but that's probably enough. I've gone over time, and Stephen has very interesting things to tell you. I'll use this at the very end. I want to play some examples from the score and I want to get there by telling you a little bit about Hindemith's life and career 
partly because I think it's important to, in, with respect to Hindemith, to realize that this may have been a departure for Balanchine, but in many ways it wasn't a departure for Hindemith. This, the music, for those of you who know Hindemith's music, this is what we could describe as a mature work written in a familiar style, a familiar idiom that is, um, I was going to say inimitable Hindemith, but actually he had a lot of imitators. Uh, and why he had a lot of imitators it has to do with the fact that he uh, became a teacher. Also, this, if anything, this music is not modernist so much as neoclassical. Hindemith is, is, in a way, a musician's musician. He started out as a performer. He learned to play the violin. He then became a composer. And he ended up also becoming a teacher and a teacher who wrote about music. So he was a music theorist. Born in 1895 in the vicinity of Frankfurt in Germany, he began his career at the age of 19 by becoming the first violin in the Frankfurt Opera Orchestra. So he had a lot of practice and experience in the theater to begin with, and he um, fell in rather nicely with the principal conductor's uh, daughter, whom he married, uh, Gertrude, his wife, and she stayed his wife throughout their career. But he quickly moved on to emphasizing composition. He changed from the violin and became a viola player, a great soloist, but he tended to perform his own pieces, so he, he wrote a lot of string music for himself as a composer. So this is in the early 1920s, so First World War was just over. There was this incredible cultural turmoil in the post-revolutionary period in Weimar, Germany. He gained a reputation as something of a bad boy of music. So if he later was dubbed a neoclassicist, at the very beginning he was dubbed uh, all kinds of things, expressionist, uh, surrealist, uh, uh, somebody who would like to shock. He composed operas about, uh, for example, a one-act opera about a nun ripping the loincloth from a crucifix in a nunnery, another one in a harem where somebody seduces the, um, uh, the women in the harem and gets the usual uh, punishment. So these were things that were quite, the, uh, being castration, of course, uh, all, all kinds of uh, somewhat shocking things, and he composed in his own sort of highly expressive style, but this would soon change with a shift to what was variously described at the time as neo-baroque, even neoclassical in the sense that it sounded rather like the contemporaneous music of Stravinsky, Soldier's Tale. Hindemith played the violin part in the Soldier's Tale beautifully, apparently, and caused the composer Buzzoni to cry. It was so wonderful. And he was also dubbed with the label new, objective, uh, new Objectivity. And this because 
both as a performer and as a composer, he began to eschew the kind of romantic expressivity in music, the kind of rubato in performance, and he developed this very kind of matter-of-fact, objective way of playing, often very fast. And a lot of these pieces, when you listen to them, they are in that sort of school of wrong note music, as it's sometimes called. It sounds a little bit like Johann Sebastian Bach, but it's Bach projected through some kind of distorting lens. So slowly but surely he moves from being this upstart to being a kind of regular fixture of the music scene in the middle period of the, of the Weimar Republic. So his early music was dubbed by one uh, critic as inflation music because it's sort of hectic quality reflected the turbulent times, you know, the 1923 hyperinflation where where the, the whole society there was nervous. And his music itself then kind of settles down into what you might call a relative stabilization. And particularly with a, a key event in Hinnemitz's life in 1927, when the bad boy of music gets an appointment as a professor at the conservatory. And so he has actually to then to be rather responsible about what he's doing and teach students how to compose and he starts thinking not about breaking rules but actually formulating rules and so he would in the 1930s eventually publish a tract called The Craft of Musical Composition in which he tried to distill his own music and come up with what he thought were more or less timeless and universal values in music. So the bad boy also became extremely, in many ways, conservative and got a reputation for being an academic composer. He was much more than that, of course, because he was doing all kinds of things, composing ballet music, an early ballet called The, De the, the, uh, the Demon. There, was, um, there were several operas that he composed. He went very much along with the tendency towards the, the democratization of music in the Weimar Republic and started writing for different audiences, for amateurs, for amateur groups, for amateur individuals. And it's well known that Hindemith has written a sonata for pretty much every instrument you can think of. So there's a sonata for bassoon and horn and violin, viola, cello, bass, etc. He stopped short uh, of non-orchestral instruments but wrote pretty much a sonata for every instrument in, in an increasingly stabilized musical style that's neoclassical to the extent that he sticks very much to the traditional forms of music. He writes sonatas and symphonies divided up into a certain number of mu movements with a certain number of themes, and he does this in increasingly in accord with his own theories of tonality. This isn't tonality in the sense that we have in 19th century music. He tried to reformulate the idea of tonality as certain kinds of rest and tension, a fluctuation in these things from a point of rest going to a point of greater dissonance and tension and then back to a greater point 
of rest. Now, despite his music moving in this, in this more conservative academic uh, direction, he didn't exactly get on very well with the National Socialists who abhorred the first part of his career in particular. And despite the best efforts of the conductor Wilhelm Furtwängler to suggest that Hindemith wasn't such a bad German composer after all, he eventually had his music banned by the Nazis. This is a long and painful story, a, a, a phase of his life that he ended up regretting somewhat because he was trying in a way to accommodate himself to the new cultural policies in Nazi Germany, but the Like Furtwängler, he didn't really, of course, share a lot of the aspects of national socialist uh, culture. Eventually, he, in 1937, after his music had been banned in Nazi Germany, he left for Switzerland and then eventually made his way to the United States where he took up a position in New Haven in 1940 as a professor at the Yale School of Music, where he would teach for more than a decade and become very much a beloved teacher. And this is where you get these pupils who learn to compose a la Hindemith and learn the craft of musical composition. And this musical language becomes, in that way, quite widespread. Enter Balanchine, who initially wanted to take one of Hindemith's earlier compositions, a piece of what you might call concerted chamber music called Chamber Music Piece Number 2. He, he wrote a whole series of them in the 1920s, somewhat like Bach's Brandenburg concertos. Hindemith didn't want uh, Balanchine to use chamber music number two, so they decided that Hindemith would write this new work in 1914, as we've heard the four temperaments. As we've also heard, there are three themes, uh, or rather there is an overall thematic section at the beginning that is divided into three contrasting sections. And then, as the title of the piece uh, betrays, theme and variations, there's a set of uh, four variations that succeed the presentation of the theme, each of which has one of the labels that we saw, so uh, melancholic, sanguinic, phlegmatic, and uh, choleric at the end. Or rather, not quite at the end. I want to, as my first example, play you the very end of the piece, which is something of a a rather grand, culminating moment. It sounds almost like an apotheosis. It's marked in the score, Maestoso, so it's rather majestic. And not only that, it en ends on a wonderfully sort of triumphant C major chord, the sort of thing that you get at the end of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, a work that starts in C minor and goes from that darkness to the light of the C major at the very end. Let's just uh, hear the conclusion and then we'll go back to the beginning.
So it's a culmination. We hear a little bit of the opening theme. Let's go now all the way back. We heard a little bit of it before and hear the first theme in its entirety and then the beginning of the second part of this, of this theme. part of the theme now. So you can hear how, just as he ends in that, that bright C major at the end, he starts on a, on a keynote and he takes us on an interesting journey, but the musical materials that he uses are actually quite conventional, even if the twist and, twists and turns of the melody are some, somewhat unusual and idi idiosyncratic. And this is the sort of special blend of Hindemith's musical language. Let's just skip forward now to the very end of the second part of the theme, and we will hear the final part of this three-part theme which is a very pastoral moment, really. It's a traditional Siciliano and Italian uh, dance rhythm that we hear. Yeah, third. This is the end of the second part, that quicker second section.
that's fine. So that's the, the pastoral third part. So he has plenty of material here with these three sections on which to base his four variations. And I just want to give you a little flavor of what he does uh, with the first of these, so with the melancholy uh, section. Bear in mind that in many ways this is a piece of purely instrumental music written for strings and piano, a piece of concerted chamber music that can be played in a concert without dance going to it. And it it completely sounds like another piece of purely instrumental music by Hindemith. In fact, six years before the premiere of the ballet, the premiere of the Four Temperance was given as a concert, as as a purely instrumental piece with no dance to it whatsoever. How he relates the musical material to the theme, however, is to provide a set of variations that more or less accord to the kind of implied character types, the moods that you would associate with these four temperaments or humors in accord with the ancient tradition that very much interested uh, Hindemith as a theorist of European culture. So we will hear how this theme at the very beginning of the melancholy section is completely transformed. The, The opening notes stay the same, but above all through rhythmic variation and then through something we heard about jazz as a very jazzy moment where the music can't make up its mind whether it wants to be major or minor and we get this lovely kind of blue note clash uh, coming in there. You'll, you'll hear it as soon as it uh, occurs in the recording. So this is just an indication of how Hindemith uses this purely musical, absolute musical form and does what music does so well, which is to express character and mood above all through the variation in rhythm and in harmony and in meter. He takes us through this whole range of musical expression. Material stays the same. The material unifies the piece as a piece of purely instrumental music, but it reflects these different human characteristics that we associate with these four uh, conditions. In a way, they're extreme manifestations of the same opening thematic material in these very four, these four different contrasting moods. I said at the 
in, in my earlier comment that at the very end, this is all kind of brought to fruition. So we start with the sort of normal condition of the theme. It is transformed in these various ways and then ends up as some kind of character synthesis at the, at the very end. So we have instrumental music, we have dance. It's a non-narrative ballet. It's celebrated as such in the history books because there's no real story being told, either by the music or really by the choreography. But the two artistic forms have in common that they're both capable in their own unique inherent ways of expressing these temperaments. So we can see the temperaments being reflected in the dance movements and we can see, we can feel this, the same kind of thing going on in the music but by very different means. And one last thing, I haven't seen this production that's on today and, and another component of this one that I noticed in the New York Ballet version that I saw is that we don't just have music and movement in a kind of dialogue with one another in this non-narrative ballet, but we also have the optical effects of color, which can also reflect mood. So you might be thinking in a, in a fairly synesthetic way that there's a dialogue that's going on, a three-way dialogue between music, between movement, and if we get color in this production, also color, whether it's black bile, blue bile, yellow bile, or whatever it might be, or red blood. Thank you. Thank you. Um, actually, just to comment on the color, that, that was uh, chosen by the um, director, Meryl Brockway, of that production, um, and it's not commonly seen in, in it was a made-for-television production. Um, given that we have about seven minutes left, um, I'd like to invite our audience um, to uh, come forward with their questions for our guests. Let's see here. Uh, yes, in the blue. Yes. Uh, so the, the question is, um, where do the three themes fit into the, um, the four variations, uh, which are melancholic, phlegmatic, uh, uh, melancholic, sanguinic, phlegmatic, and choleric? Um, I think this is a question for both of you to answer, actually. Beth, would you like to uh, speak first? Well, Stephen knows much more about um, the the theme and variations format than I do. And Hindemith doesn't do the standard thing of just stating a theme, does he? I mean, and then you get these four different variations on it. So, no, it, well, yeah, it's, 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 really, it's really four times three in the sense that what is called the theme is divided into three very distinct yeah. parts. And then you get the melancholy section, which itself then is in three parts. So you hear these three parts, each of which is then being varied. The same happens for the next section, the next section. So you really have four times three of the variations, and then you have three at the beginning. So you really hear 15 sections, and then the maestoso 
conclusion. At the end, which yes. seems, I'm curious, what, what do you have to say about the Maestoso section? Because Balanchine does some really remarkable things with it, I think. I think he really makes it work. And somehow, but, but uh, to, get back to, your, to get back to your notion, um, my understanding is that if you look at the movements of, the, of each principal dancer, that is melancholic, sanguinic is next, then phlegmatic, and then choleric, you'll see in the dancer's movements the kind of body movements that you might want to, that you would associate with these, uh, with these temperaments. So, for example, you'll see in melancholic, the man, uh, it's a male soloist, and he really throws himself on the floor, um, and he uses all of these kind of crap, sorry, it was like positions like, you know, yeah. protective... Uh, down to the floor and then he'll get up and he'll kind of heave himself back to the front of the stage he's a man in despair it seems to me it's very clear that he is in despair and then there's an incredible one movement this is the second part of melancholic where melancholy seems to kind of move through the world I love that it's um, you'll see that he's kind of pulled by two women and then he, 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 it's almost as if he's facing the world. And then you see these, is it four women? Yeah, four women come towards him. And this guy is kind of pulled and pushed, and he gets into this group of four women, and then he gets caught there. You'll see him actually get trapped in that group of women so that you see sanguinic, you know, um, I wouldn't say lively exactly, but very vital, very um, um, f- full of li- much more full of life than the others. Phlegmatic, uh, very, very. You'll see the phlegmatic at one point. I told you about this thing, but you'll also see him. I'm going to do a really rotten job of it, but I'll try. To, okay, he and he pulls this thing back, and then he goes like this. And he, too, ends up on the floor, kind of. You know, you get crouching on the floor, and these women surround him. And as I say, he kind of peers through there. It's almost as if he's afraid of facing the world. That kind of, that's the phlegmatic. Then choleric, wow. I mean, you're going to see this, these tremendous piquet turns and, and pirouettes all around the stage. She just kind of comes out there like a bat out of hell. And... And um, Balanchine, again, uses the speed, you know, the speed of the dancer, the power of the dancer. The, um, it's quite amazing. And then that Maestoso section, which is my favorite section, I love it. He, what he does is he lines up the dancers. You saw an image of it before. The dancers go, are in parallel lines, almost like an airplane runway. And the Maestoso section is um, okay. So so what you'll hear is you'll hear this kind of a plot on the bottom. All right, like am I getting this right? Okay, and then you'll hear this kind of spurts from the orchestra. They go ba ba bum and just matching the music, you'll see these dancers lifted up like airplanes. You know. It's real, that's a fabulous. We actually have it if you want to see it.
want to see it? But here's where you can really see, here's where you can really see Balanchine responding to that music. And you, have you seen this section? Sure. Yeah, right. So you know, do you think that works? I mean, yeah, you... It works wonderfully, yes. Yeah. That's we have time for one more question. Yes. Grace. So the question is, um, given that the four temperaments are associated with uh, so many different things like the elements, uh, are, are the four temperaments in this ballet also associated with the, uh, with the seasons? Is there something seasonal about this ballet? Seasonal. I think moods, maybe. Spring, summer, winter, fall. Well, you need to answer that because I'm not so sure. I think people's associations with these seasons would be different. And as far as I know, this is not something that Hindemith had in mind. Yeah. There's very little documentation about how he saw this. He, he was, I think, more interested in, in the kind of pure theory of the, of the humors and the mm-hmm. character traits rather than the season ones. But I, but I don't know. Uh, the, the expressive uh, types are so varied within each of these, it would be hard to sort of pin them down and say, this is spring and this is winter and this is uh, yeah. summer. That would be a tough one, I think. Well, thank you very much, uh, Beth and Stephen, for your Thanks. talk today.